Hey, good morning, and welcome to our Sunday morning online church service. Faith on Hill is a church in Milwaukee, Oregon, that meets in person and online every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. In person, we are socially distanced. Everyone's wearing masks. Uh, no one's bear-hugging like we're doing all the things that you need to do. Uh, online, we gather here on our website, faithonhill.com. I know there was a technical difficulty last week, and uh, the video ran late on our Facebook and didn't run at all on our website. I apologize about that. I have no idea what happened there. Um, I know that things were out of whack after the ice storm. Uh, in fact, um, that same morning, there was something going on with Comcast where we could get um, Google and YouTube, but we couldn't get Facebook um, or a couple other sites. Like it was, it was very odd what was happening. So I apologize about that, but we do meet Sunday mornings at 10.30 a.m. There's also an audio version of this message available on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Uh, during the week, we also release a Bible teaching podcast called the 20-Minute Bible Study. That releases a video version on our Facebook and an audio version also on Apple Music or Spotify. You just have to search Faith on Hill. And then we gather together in small groups. Um, I love small groups, and we get together, uh, we talk about this message, we're going to go deeper into it, so if there's a question that someone has about something that I didn't cover, or if, um, you know, there's some deeper thing that we can connect with as a church, uh, we do that, we pray for one another, we pray with one another, uh, it's one of my, my highlights of the week. And if you would like to be part of that and you haven't been, you can email smallgroups at faithonhill.com for the link. Or you can email me, adam at faithonhill.com. If you're watching on our website or on our Facebook, would you just say hello in the chat? Uh, we'd love to know who's here. Let us know how we can pray for you. Um, also, if you have any questions about uh, uh, Bible prophecy in general, because for the next couple weeks we will be talking about Bible prophecy because it's in the part of the Bible we're studying, you can email me, adam at faithonhill.com, and it will help me know uh, what questions people have out there so that I can address them. If you have a Bible, open to the book of Daniel, chapter 7, as we continue our study in the book of Daniel to see what it's like to live as believers in exile. If you have a Bible, open it to the book of Daniel, chapter 7. In verse 1, it says, In the first year of King, oh, sorry, in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream. And visions passed through his mind as he was lying in bed, and he wrote down the substance of his dream. Daniel said, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me were the four winds of heaven churning up the great sea, four great beasts, each different from the others, came up out of the sea. The first was like a lion, and it had wings of an eagle. The second, or I watched until its wings were torn off and it was lifted from the ground so that it stood on two feet like a human being and the mind of a human was given to it. And there before me was a second beast which looked like a bear. It was raised up on one of its sides and it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. It was told, get up and eat your fill of flesh. After that, I looked, and there before me was another beast, one that looked like a leopard. 
and on its back it had four wings like that of a bird. The beast had four heads, and it was given authority to rule. After that, in my vision, I looked at night, and there before me was a fourth beast, terrifying and frightening, very powerful. It had large iron teeth, and it crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. It was different from all the former beasts, and it had ten horns. While I was thinking about the horns, there before me was another horn, a little one, which came up among them, and three of the first horns were uprooted before it. This horn had eyes like the eyes of a human, and a mouth that spoke boastfully. As I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, his, the hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire, and its wheels were ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. Tens thousands times ten thousands stood before him. The court was seated and the books were opened. When I continued to watch because of the boastful words the horn was speaking, I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. The other beasts had been stripped of their authority, but were allowed to live for a period of time. In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and people of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. And he that will not pass away, his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. I, Daniel, was troubled in spirit, and the visions that passed through my mind disturbed me. I approached one of those standing there and asked him the meaning of all of this. So he told me and gave me the interpretation of these things. The four great beasts are four kings that will rise from the earth. But the holy people of the Most High will receive the kingdom and possess, possess it forever. Yes, forever and ever. Then I wanted to know the meaning of the fourth beast, which was different from all the others and most terrifying with its iron teeth and its bronze claws, the beast that crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. I also wanted to know about the ten horns on its head and how the other horn that came up before which three of them fell, that, the horn that looked the most imposing than the others, and that had eyes and a mouth that spoke boastfully. As I watched, the horn was waging war against the holy people and defeating them until the Ancient of Days came and pronounced judgment in favor of the holy people of the Most High. And the time came when they possessed the kingdom. He gave me this explanation. The fourth beast is a fourth kingdom that will appear on the earth. 
It will be different from all other kingdoms. It will devour the whole earth, trampling it down and crushing it. The ten horns are ten kings who will come from this kingdom. After them, another king will arise different from the earlier ones. He will subdue three kings. He will speak against the Most High and oppress his holy people and try to change the times and laws. The holy people will be delivered into his hand for a time, time, and half a time. Or sorry, time, times, and half a time. And the court will sit and his power will be taken away and completely destroyed forever. Then the sovereignty, power, and greatness of all the kingdoms under heaven will be handed over to the holy people of the Most High. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom and all rulers will worship and obey him. This is the end of the matter. I, Daniel, was deeply troubled by my thoughts and my face turned pale, but I kept the matter to myself. This is God's word. I believe that it is true. I believe that it is an accurate record of what Daniel saw. I believe that it speaks to people in our day, just as it spoke to Daniel and people in his time. Let's talk about the end of the world. That's a fun topic. Daniel chapter 7 is a shift in the book. Daniel chapter 1 through 6 tells a story, a historical narrative. It tells the story of a young man around 15 years old who was taken in chains after his city, the capital city of his nation, fell to conquerors and he was taken away in chains to their capital, the city of Babylon. And there he was indoctrinated in their culture and their custom and their law. And he was made one of the officials of the empire. And over the next many decades of his life, he served under four kings in two different empires, the Babylonians, and then eventually in his later years, the Medes and the Persians. And as Daniel lived and served, he was used by God to speak to these kings, to Nebuchadnezzar, to Belshazzar, to Darius, and probably likely a fellow named Nabonidus, who's not mentioned in the scripture, but history tells us was there kind of in the period between Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar. But it's now we're in a shift and we have moved from historical narrative to apocalyptic literature. And apocalyptic literature is, is somebody recounting a divine experience they had and a vision of the end of the world. When we use the word prophecy, I think most people think of somebody who's telling the future. But the word prophecy just means to speak the word of God. Some prophets in the Bible spoke to their time and their moment. Some prophets in the Bible spoke of future events some prophets spoke about both, and sometimes it was not always clear which was which. For example, do you remember the, uh, the prophecy that says the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, speaking of Jesus? Well, 
Isaiah was told by God, take your son and go speak to the king. And so Isaiah takes his son and goes and speaks to the king. And as he's standing there speaking to the king, the king says, give me a sign. And Isaiah says, oh, I'll give you a sign. The virgin shall conceive and bear a son. Speaking of a far future event. But then remember Isaiah's son is there and he says, before this boy is old enough to tell right from wrong, which in their culture would have meant before he was of the age of accountability. Before he is old enough to stand on his own, these other things that I've already spoken to you will come to pass. So in that chapter, Isaiah the prophet speaks to far future events and present events. Some of the things that we will study in the next several weeks that Daniel sees and and writes down affected people in his day or in, in in a time just a few years beyond him, like literally five or ten years after he died. So close enough that we would say he was speaking directly to his time. And some of the things that Daniel writes down didn't happen for hundreds of years later. And some of the things that Daniel writes down have not happened yet. Apocalyptic literature, Dr. Daniel, uh, Dr. S.R. Miller, who's a, a Bible scholar uh, specializing in the book of Daniel, and he says this, apocalyptic literature should be understood as an actual account of what the writer saw and heard rather than a contrived literature employed by a writer merely as a communicative tool. What he's saying is, we should take this as literally and as seriously as it allows. Symbolism, he, he goes on to say, is a key element in apocalyptic literature. And these symbols sometimes have baffled readers of the book of Daniel and the book of Revelation. Usually the meaning of the figures is explained in the text itself, but when this is not the case, their significance is often found in other scriptures. A valid principle for interpreting prophecy is to accept the plain sense of the text unless there is a good reason to adopt some other meaning. So what he's saying is, when you, it's important to know the type of of genre that you're dealing with when you're reading the Bible. Somebody says, do you take the Bible literally? I say, yes, I do. But what do you mean? And which part of the Bible? Because I take the scripture incredibly literally when it says that Jesus rose from the dead, physically died, physically rose from the dead. I take the the scripture incredibly literally there. When the Psalms say, God is my rock, and my fortress. I don't believe that God is literally a rock or that he is literally some kind of castle. I understand the metaphor. The same is true when I enter into um, prophetic or apocalyptic genres in the scripture. I understand that there is a difference between Daniel chapter 1 through 6, where he's telling a historical narrative account of his life, And Daniel chapter 7 through the end of the book, where he is saying, this is what I saw. And I'm going to give you the explanation as best as I understood it or as much as it was explained to me. But some of this stuff, it's there and I don't have an answer for you. I'm just telling you this is what I saw. 
The scripture has been incredibly consistent from the very beginning. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, when God is passing judgment on Adam and Eve for their sin and rebellion, and he's also passing judgment on the serpent, the tempter, and he says, I'm going to put enmity between a descendants of these people and you. And one of their descendants, you will bruise his heel, but he will crush your head. Speaking of Jesus, at the very beginning, there was a promise that there would come a time when the enemies of God would be finally and fully defeated. When your head gets crushed, that's it. The, the, the consistent biblical narrative is this, creation. God created a perfect world and he put people in it so that he could have relationship with them. But people sinned, rebelled against God, turned their own ways and, and through that brought the curse of sin and death and suffering into this world. And that's what we see in this prophecy here. Sin and death and suffering. These four beasts representing four kings or rulers or empires. And what do they do? Do they seek the good of people? Do they use their power or their position or authority for the betterment of others? No, they conquer, they destroy, they terrorize, they victimize. But the great thing is that the message of the scripture is not just creation and sinful rebellion. It is also a message of salvation. Genesis 3.15. You will crush his, bruise his heel, but he is going to crush the enemy's head. John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him will not die, but will have everlasting life. The message of salvation has consistently been a part of the biblical story. So we have a shift in narrative. We're shifting from uh, historical narrative to apocalyptic literature. And we're going to take it seriously, like Dr. Miller suggests, except where we have a really good reason to do so. Like, for example, maybe it says, hey, this is just a uh, a vision or a metaphor? Or, or uh, you know, do we believe that there was literally a, a leopard with four wings? No. But do we believe that this represents something? Yes. And we're told what it represents, at least in part. Daniel chapter 7 is also a shift in language. I haven't made a big deal about this, but Daniel chapter 2 verse 4 through to the end of Daniel chapter 7 is not written in Hebrew. It's one of the few places in the Hebrew scripture, the Old Testament, that is not written in Hebrew. It's written in Aramaic. Aramaic was the common language of what we think of as the Middle East. Jesus probably would have spoke primarily Aramaic. Uh, Although the New Testament scripture was written in Greek, it is very likely that the sermons Jesus preached, that the conversations Jesus had, would have been in Aramaic. They would have read the scripture on on the Sabbath in Hebrew, and then he would have taught in Aramaic. So why 
does Daniel, from chapter 2 to chapter 7, use the language of outsiders, non-Jews, the Babylonians, the Assyrians, all the... The, all these people that weren't part of God's people, he uses their language. But in chapter one and then chapter eight through the rest of the book, he does not. He uses the Hebrew language. There's a lot of different opinions about that. You could teach whole seminary classes on it. I have no interest in boring you with that. If nothing else, I believe that, that this is, is a shift, that the reason chapter 7 is in Aramaic is because it pertains to the whole world. That this coming final judgment of God before he establishes his kingdom is a message for the whole world. And then from chapter 8 through the rest of the book, the message is primarily for the Jews, God's chosen people. That's my personal opinion, and if somebody strongly disagreed with me, I wouldn't necessarily fight them, at least too much. I might arm wrestle them, but, but no fists, you know, just arm wrestle. Um, I think there is this idea that part of our faith is a message to the outside, and part of our faith is a message to us who are part of God's people. So, so Daniel chapter 7, this is the final part of the message that God gave his people, the Jews, to the rest of the world. And then from the rest of the book on, he will be speaking primarily to his own people. Now, where's the church in all this? You know, in Ephesians chapter 3, Paul says that the church is a mystery. We didn't see that coming. The best way I can describe it is, is mountains. That, um, what's the tallest point in the state of Oregon. It's Mount Hood. But if I were to walk outside right now and look to the east, I know Mount Hood is over there, but I can't see it because it's it's a matter of perspective. I know that Mount Hood is thousands of feet higher in elevation than where I am standing right now, but I can't see it because of perspective. My great-grandparents had a farm and they lived at the foot of the Cascade Mountains north of Seattle. And we would go out there when I was a little kid, you know, basically like my own son, Colton and Jack, like their age, we would go out to my great-grandparents' farm. And there was their farm and there was the road and across the road was another house and then it just went up. But you couldn't see all of the mountains. You were too close, and so it makes it hard to see. You needed perspective, but just before we would get off Interstate 5 to go east to where my grandparents' farm was, you could see all the mountains, and you, got, you, you could see all of these peaks. But even then, some of them looked like they were right next to each other. Oh, these two mountains. Hey, there's mountain one, mountain two. But if you were to turn sideways, you would see that there is a great distance between them, but perspective shows them as being next to each other. Oh, no, they're actually very far apart. But perspective makes them look like they're right there. I think the same is true of the church. I I believe that, that there is a sense in which you see these three beasts, and they happen before the church. And we'll get to it in a couple weeks, but there is a hidden valley 
And that's this age of grace that we've been living in. And nobody knows how long it is between here and there. But this age of grace that we are living in, what the New Testament describes as the mystery of the church. So if you're looking for the church, you know, there's a map. It says, you are here. Where am I? You're not clearly seen. We aren't clearly seen. This age of grace that we live in is not clearly seen. So if you're going, hey, where are we at? We're a mystery, according to the New Testament scripture. So then, how does that affect us? One of the things that I'm really committed to as we talk about prophecy is to not bog down in talking about abstract things that don't affect our daily lives. I believe that this scripture speaks to two very important truths that hit home to where we're at right now. The first is this. Humanity will destroy itself. It absolutely will. Give us enough time and we will destroy ourselves. There, there is a group of people in America, some of them are within the church, some of them are without, but they believe that America is falling apart. It's absolutely falling apart. And our, our constitutional rights are in danger and everything is, is just it's going to hell in a handbasket. I appreciated what, what a friend of mine uh, told one of those people recently. He said, yeah, where was that ever guaranteed? There's, there's nowhere in the Bible that says America will continue forever. The Bible actually says humanity will destroy itself. So if what you're saying is true, it's just proving the Bible to be true. You give people enough time and we will mess it up. These four beasts that equal four kings or four kingdoms or empires, and three have happened and one, that fourth beast is different. There is no historical comparison to. People have made historical comparisons and they say, okay, if you look at from the time of Daniel to the time of the church, what were the major empires that would have been on the scene then? And it would go, the Medes and the Persians who had not yet come. Dan, chapter, chapter 7 verse 1 tells us that Belshazzar was still king, so Babylon had not fallen yet. The Medes and the Persians came and conquered. And who defeated them? Well, I'm not recommending it at all, but if you've seen the movie 300, you know that the Medes and the Persians pushed as far west as Greece, and then they were pushed back, and the Greeks surged east until they were supplanted by the Romans. And the Romans were the ruling empire when the church was birthed. And we talked about this. If you want to do some some reading on your own in the Bible, go back and check Daniel chapter 2. There was that prophecy that said that there are, your, your kingdom is like a statue and it's the head of gold, but there's other kingdoms coming after you. And we talked about how the Romans weren't really surplanted, they just crumbled from within. And every European power and some non-European powers since have tried to claim the title of the true successor of the Roman Empire. Every single one, whether it's Mussolini, whether it's Hitler, whether it's the Spanish Empire, whether it was Charlemagne and the Holy Roman Empire back in the day, everyone has tried to claim that title. 
Even though the Holy Roman Empire was neither holy nor Roman, they've all tried to claim that title that, hey, we are the true successor to the Caesars. I mean, that's where the term czar comes from. You know, the Russians. Czar, it just means Caesar in Russian. Give people a chance and they will destroy. They will hurt. Don't be surprised. I I think that's why we need systems of accountability. You know, there's been a lot in the news lately about leaders in the Christian church who have fallen and sinned. The common thread with all of them is that they lived outside of real community and real accountability. It's the common thread for all of them. And we need that. I need that. You need that because people left to their own, you know, what does it say in the scripture? Men love the darkness for their deeds are evil. These four beasts show how humanity will destroy itself through violence and oppression and injustice if we're left to our own devices. But here's the good news. Jesus will save the world if we let him. Verse 13, I want to read this again. I love this verse. Verse 13 says, In my vision I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man. Now, the original way of translating this actually should say one who looked like a human being. And apparently the reason that Bible translators in English have used this phrase, a son of man, is to identify him more easily with Christ. And son of man was one of the messianic titles that Christ took. Christ is actually the messianic title. It's just the Greek word for uh, savior or messiah. So Jesus's name was not Jesus Christ, like, you know, his last name was Christ. No, his, his name was Jesus. His name in, in his town would have been Yeshua Barjona, or sorry, not Barjona, Barjoseph. Yeshua Barjoseph. They would have seen him as Yeshua, Jesus, the son of Joseph, even though Joseph was only his foster or adoptive father. But that's why they translate it this way. But what Daniel is saying is, I saw somebody who looked like a human being. Jesus, fully God, but fully man, God in human flesh. And there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. How does the scripture say that Jesus will return? It says he'll come in the clouds. He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. He was given authority and glory and sovereign power. And somebody can say, well, that's just a person. God's going to establish a human ruler. Ah, but watch this. All nations and every peoples of every language worshiped him. This tells me two things. One, this tells me this has not happened yet because we have no historical comparison for this. There are people who believe that everything in the book of Daniel has already happened And they'll tell you it's already happened and we don't need to think about it other than some academic exercise or some maybe good lesson we can learn. We don't have a historical comparison. There's there's no historical comparison for somebody who is worshipped by every nation and people. And why would God, the Ancient of Days, allow somebody other than himself to receive worship? Where do we see that anywhere in Scripture? The answer is we don't. You see it all through, you know, where where an angel will appear to somebody and they will bow down before them because they are freaked out. And the angels say, see that you don't do that. Don't worship me. That's not right. But yet here, this son of man, this one who looks like a human being 
is given all power and all sovereignty and all authority and receives all worship. Jesus will save the world if we let him. Verse 13 shows us that Jesus is victorious. If you want a little bit more homework, go and read Revelation chapter 22, especially the first few verses. It's so encouraging. It's the end of the Bible. It's the end of the story. Jesus wins. And in Revelation chapter 22, it says that there is a river flowing through the city from the throne of God. And and this river nourishes the trees along its banks and the trees, the leaves of the trees are for the healing of the nations. Do I know 100% what that means? Nope, but I'm excited for it. Compare that to with Daniel chapter 7 here, where it says in, in verse 9, thrones were set in place and the ancient of days took his seat and his throne was flaming with fire and the wheels were ablaze and a river was flowing coming out from before him a river of fire. It's interesting to me, these two rivers. Every wicked thing that's ever been done, every wicked thought or intention of my heart, every rebellious act, every sinful deed deserves the flame driven justice of God. We can look at the world and we can say, that's not right. That should be dealt with. That should be punished. They should not be allowed to get away with that. And God says, yes, I agree. My justice, my holiness, my purity cannot allow this wickedness and it must be judged. This evil must be avenged. The souls of those who have been raped, the, the, the souls of those who have been murdered cry out, how long, O Lord, until you avenge us? And God's justice is coming. But the good news is that any and all who have placed their faith in the saving work of Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection, that not just covers our sins, but washes them away, obliterates them, then we can trust that we will not experience this river of fire and judgment, but we will experience Revelation 22, the river of life, supporting these trees, bringing healing to the nations. Jesus will save us if we will let him. And I believe that Jesus saves us fully. I believe that Jesus saves us fully. And I believe that if we surrender ourselves fully to God, not just for salvation, but for a full victory, I I believe that God will do his work. And so if you've been listening and you say, I know that, that God's judgment is right, but it's coming for me, then the invitation is to receive the forgiveness and the mercy and the grace of God and not to experience that river of fire, but that river of life. And if you've already experienced the grace of God, but you say, how can I live fully in the spirit? How can I experience the fullness of what God has for me? Jump in all the way to that river of life. 
Say, God, I want everything that you have for me. Fill me to full. I believe God hears those prayers. I believe God answers those prayers. If you have prayed anything along those lines or anything else, you can email me, adam at faithonhill.com. Jesus hears you. Jesus loves you. And he saves us. We just have to respond to his call. When he's reaching out, we just have to take his hand and he will grab us and he will bring us into his family and into his goodness. God bless you. We'll see you this week in our small groups. You can email small groups at Faith on Hill for a link and we'll see you with the 20-minute Bible study podcasts.